Amen. Well, it is good to be together with you all on a Sunday morning to worship Christ, to remember his gospel, and to bring ourselves to the word, to bring ourselves under the teaching of the word, to be fed by our Savior, to be grown, to be strengthened, to be challenged. So I hope that you will take out your copy of the scriptures with me this morning as we return to Luke chapter 11 with an eagerness and an expectation that God has something for us today. Uh, Many of us this week will be celebrating one of my favorite holidays, which is Thanksgiving. And you'll probably, if you're like a lot of families, maybe say a prayer where you give thanks. Perhaps you will uh, go around the table and share something you're thankful for. I know my family growing up since, probably since the early 90s, there's an old bed sheet that functioned as a tablecloth, because that's what we could afford back in those days, where every year we would take out a a pen or a Sharpie and write what we were thankful for. And today, in 2023, there's hardly any space left on that tablecloth. And I love that tradition. But I'm guessing whatever your traditions are at Thanksgiving, whether it's prayer, whether it's saying something, writing something, probably the word blessed is a word that will get used a lot. You'll speak of blessed or blessing. It might even be written in scripty font on the napkins that your grandma got from Hobby Lobby. I don't know. But probably the word blessed is something that is going to be prominent in our Thanksgiving celebrations. But what does it really mean to be blessed? What is true blessing? And how is it? What is the key to experiencing that blessing? It's a good question to ask. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus continues his conversation, really his debate, uh, with a crowd who's gathered there regarding the source of his power and the nature of his kingdom. And we find that there's great consequences that hinge upon our response to Jesus Christ. What are you going to do with the message of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the claims of Jesus? What is your response going to be? Our response can either lead to true blessing, or it can lead to tragic devastation. Our text this morning in Luke 11 begins in verse 24. I'll read through verse 28. Please listen and follow along as I read God's word. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Father in heaven, as we sit under the preaching and the teaching of your word this morning, I want to ask that you would help us by your spirit. Help us to delight in your word as we ought. Help us to delight in it for its own sake, because it is true, because it is from you, because it tells us about you. Pray that as we delight in your word and and in the glory that it reveals to us, that you would then direct our hearts that we would respond in such a way that would bring you honor and in such a way that would bring us joy. Lord, lead us to a right understanding. Help us to see it. I pray that you would also lead us to a glad embrace of your truth, that we would joyfully, eagerly respond in faith, in obedience, and live in the way that you desire. 
Pray that you would help me, Lord, in my weakness to preach with the humility and the boldness and the authority that such a task requires, with the urgency that's been described before as a dying man to dying men. Pray that you'd use me and open our ears, open our hearts to receive your word. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. So our passage today continues, as you've seen, to center around this somewhat strange topic to our ears of demonic activity in the world. If you look back up at verse 14, we saw last week that this crowd that Jesus is speaking to, they've just witnessed an exorcism. Verse 14, it says, he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But the response to Jesus varied. Some people who witnessed this made accusations in verse 15. They accused him of casting out demons by the prince of demons, using satanic power. They made these accusations because they're resistant to Jesus, and they're really throwing anything they can at him to discredit him. But Jesus, as we saw, exposes the folly of their claims, and he makes it clear that the real issue, what they should actually be worried about, is not whose side is Jesus on. The real issue Their concern ought to be whose side are they on? Are they with him or are they against him? Verse 23, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. You see, the message of Christ and his kingdom requires a response. And there is much that is at stake. And so in our text today, as Jesus continues to teach, we see exactly what's at stake. There's two key realities that become clear. And the first, in verse 24 through 26, is this. A wrong response to Jesus leads to tragic devastation. That's the first reality. A wrong response to Jesus leads to tragic devastation. Verse 24 through 26. Jesus describes what happens as a a demon who formerly had possessed someone wanders around and eventually returns and everything that happens because of that. And while these insights into the, the movements and the tendencies of unclean spirits, that is intriguing to us. It raises questions. It seems strange and maybe a bit unsettling. The real thing we should notice, the real thing to pay attention to here is the condition of the person. Don't get overly distracted by the movements of the unclean spirit, because Jesus here is talking to people about their response to his message and his power. Now, casting out demons had really become a hallmark of Christ's earthly ministry. It proved that he was the son of God. It signaled the presence of the kingdom of God in their midst, and it illustrated his redemptive mission, that he had come to rescue sinners from their bondage. Jesus had done this again and again and again to drive home those points. He'd also empowered the 12, his disciples. He had sent them out on a preaching journey, and they too had cast out demons to prove that Jesus was the Son of God, to signal the presence of the kingdom of God, and to illustrate Christ's redemptive mission. It was the same thing. And it wasn't just the 12. The 72 witnesses had also been sent out to go to these various towns and preach the good news of the kingdom. And they too rejoiced that the demons were subject to them in Christ's name. We also know that in this time period, there were certain Jewish exorcists who also attempted to help people who were afflicted by these spirits. We see an example of this in the book of Acts. But the question is, what happens after such an encounter? What about after the unclean spirit has been driven away? Well, Jesus explains. Verse 24, he says, 
When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. He describes this demon as an unclean spirit. Think about that word unclean. God created these spiritual beings. These are angels who originally were created to serve and to worship God, but they rebelled. They followed Satan in the great fall, so they are no longer holy. They are no longer clean, no longer pure. They are now unclean. These spirits are morally corrupt and twisted, which means that wherever they take up residence, whatever it is that they touch, it brings defilement. It brings moral confusion. It brings emotional distortion. It brings even physical corruption. We see this in the muteness and the deafness and the lameness of of many who were afflicted by demons in Jesus' day. And Jesus says this unclean spirit, having gone out of a person, passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Jesus describes here a cursed existence, that this unclean spirit is restless, frustrated. These creatures that God, that God called into existence by his word, they were designed for heaven, but they've been banished. The earth is not their natural home. And they find no rest here. There is no rest when you live in rebellion against God and under his judgment. And so he describes this demon as wandering through the waterless places. The Old Testament actually describes the desert as a haunt for such evil spirits. In Isaiah 13, 19, there's a curse that's pronounced on Babylon. Isaiah writes, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. And it will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there. And their houses will be full of howling creatures. There ostriches will dwell. And there wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant palaces." This is a picture of God's judgment as a place becomes desolate and becomes a haunt for creatures, both physical and spiritual. Even if you study the the Hebrew language, some of the words here that are translated are are a little bit tough for us to even discern. Is he talking about a physical creature or a spiritual creature? We see similar language in Isaiah 34, starting in verse 13, as there's judgment pronounced on Edom. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds. Nettles and thistles in its fortresses shall be a haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. Again, some of this language is a bit mysterious to us. And, and, and the, the common assumption of Jesus' day was that the desert and, and also places like the ocean, these places that were uninhabited, these places that were untamed, they were wild. They had not been brought under the dominion of man. They had not been subdued for the glory of God. So this is place, a place where creatures, both physical and spiritual, roamed. So Jesus describes this unclean spirit as wandering restless in the desert, in the waterless places. And because he finds no rest, it says in verse 24, I will return to my house from which I came. This unclean spirit remembers his former place. 
decides to go back and to take possession once again. And really this whole phenomenon of an unclean spirit taking up residence in a human being, one who is made in the image of God, is really a counterfeit of God's work. I mean, think about what it is that God has done. He sent his son in the incarnation to take on human flesh. Satan can't exactly do that, but these demonic possessions are really a cheap copy of the incarnation. It's also a twisted counterfeit of really God's good plan for his spirit, his Holy Spirit, to dwell in us. We are made in God's image. We're actually designed for spiritual communion with God. We're made for fellowship with his spirit. And when God's spirit takes up residence, it brings wholeness, it brings joy, it brings life. But the demons love to twist and misuse this design, bringing unholy communion that leads to corruption and defilement and death. So this spirit resolves to return to what he calls my house from which I came. And look at what he finds, verse 25. When it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. This spirit finds a life that's been put back together. One that has specifically been put in order. This person's life, though ravaged by former demonic activity, it's been cleaned up. There's been a lot of things that are restored. All of the evidence of this evil spirit's former presence, former activity, swept away. And this orderliness is important. You see, orderliness actually reflects God's glory. It reflects God's purpose. We see that God is a God of order. We see this order on display in creation. Sometime go back and read Genesis chapter 1 and look at how orderly everything is. We see God separating the day and night. We see him dividing the water from the land. We see him assigning roles and responsibilities to the sun, moon, and stars and definitely to the man made in his image. We see that God establishes a pattern of work and then rest, six days and then the seventh, resting. We see God's order on display in creation. We see God's order on display in his law as well. Read the law of Moses, and as you see God's instructions for the feasts and the holidays, you see his instructions for the sacrifices and the dress codes for, uh, for the, the priests, for example, the dietary restrictions. We see all of the civil and ceremonial laws, and we see that God delights in order, and God's good design is reflected in the order that he gives for his people. We see it in the tabernacle and the temple. Blueprints, materialists, design standards for the place where God's people would worship. We see this order in the family as God assigns roles and duties and obligations. Husbands are called to lead with love. Wives are called to submit to and honor their husbands. Children are called to obey their parents in the Lord for this is right. There's order in the family and there's order in the church. Pastors are, pastors are to shepherd the flock. Deacons are to serve people and solve problems and support the work of the ministry. The body is to build itself up in love as each member plays its part. So God is a God of order at every level. All of life is to be ordered according to God's design, God's law, God's purposes. And a rightly ordered life, a rightly ordered home, a rightly ordered church, a rightly ordered society, a rightly ordered creation is what glorifies God. And so the spirit returns and sees that there's a certain measure of order that's been restored to this person's life. 
But get this, the unclean spirit is not in any way intimidated, not in any way thwarted by the restored order in this person's life because a self-accomplished orderliness, a man-made orderliness is of no use to resist our spiritual enemies because as the spirit returns, what he also finds, in addition to everything being swept and put back in order, he finds a spiritual vacuum. Verse 25 When it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. What Jesus is teaching here is that if the Spirit of God does not dwell in us, if Christ does not, as Ephesians puts it, dwell in our hearts through faith, then the table is set and the porch light is on, but no one is at home. And this person's heart has become a hospitable residence that is ready and waiting to welcome guests. And that's exactly what happens. Like we saw back in chapter 8, one demon is bad, but multiple demons is far worse. He goes and finds seven other spirits. The number seven is a round number that signals total domination, a complete take over. And the spirit finds these seven other spirits that Jesus says are more evil than itself. It shows us there is variation in the spiritual realm. They're not all the same. It's not a bunch of demon clones that are all exactly the same. We find that some of these demons can cause men to be mute. Others cause blindness. Others cause seizures or paralysis. Some can only be overcome by much prayer, as we see in Mark chapter 9. And apparently, as Jesus says here, some are even more evil than others. And these spirits, eight of them now, the original plus seven others, they take up residence in this person's life. They dwell there. And Jesus says the result, the end result, is actually worse than if the first unclean spirit had never left in the first place. There's worse disorder. There is a worse level of defilement. There's even a worse measure of destruction. It's more hopeless and more helpless than it was before. So this is a sobering and unsettling picture that Jesus paints. And I think it's fairly easy to understand what he is saying. We understand the story But to interpret it rightly, we have to ask why. Why why is Jesus saying this? Why does he bother to explain this, this whole progression that's taken place in this person's life? Well, let's remember here in context, Jesus has been preaching and proving by his mighty works the power of his kingdom. Remember, Jesus is the one who came to overthrow Satan. Jesus overcomes him, divides his spoil, plunders his kingdom, and saves sinners. He rescues those who were in bondage. We see that in verse 22. Jesus says, when one stronger comes and attacks this strong man, he overcomes him, takes away his armor, which he has trusted, and divides his spoil. Jesus says, that's what I'm doing. That's what's happening when you see these spiritual conflicts. It is an invasion of the kingdom of darkness by Jesus Christ, the Messiah, bringing to bear the kingdom of God. And that is good news. It is such good news that Jesus recruits others to help him go preach it to all of the cities in Israel. But here's the catch. It is only those who receive Christ 
It is only those who believe in him who will experience this rescue and enter into his kingdom. Those who refuse to receive Christ, those who refuse to believe his word, they miss out on the benefits of his kingdom and are left vulnerable to the destructive power of the enemy, no matter what good things they may temporarily have experienced. You see, our only hope against the enemy is Christ. That is our only hope for victory in this spiritual conflict. It's to know Christ. It's to believe Christ. It's to be with Christ. So don't start to think, Jesus is telling us, that temporary changes in your life or temporary improvements means that you are somehow spiritually safe. Because you can make some measure of moral improvement in your life. You can clean your act up. You can turn over a new page, turn over a new leaf, as it were. You can get your life all swept up and put in order. But if there is a spiritual vacancy in your heart, you are vulnerable to the destructive power of the kingdom of darkness. And we had better not underestimate the power of our enemy. Otherwise, we risk our final state being even worse than the first. There's going to be a lot of people in hell who are former alcoholics, who are former liars, who decided to demonstrate some integrity at some point in their life. People who formerly lived a life that all of us would look at and say, what a mess. Addiction, sexual sin, anger, broken relationships. There's people that can sort of put those pieces back together in this life. But if the Spirit of God, through the gospel of Christ, does not take up residence and change the heart, the last state can end up worse than the first. Now, this doesn't mean that all unbelievers are going to be possessed by demons. That's not what Jesus is saying. But we need to recognize there are many ways that unbelievers can be affected and impacted by the working of Satan. I mean, consider how the New Testament describes the activity of our enemy. The New Testament describes Satan as producing a defiling kind of disorder. Demonic wisdom in James 3 produces disorder and all sorts of vile conduct. 2 Corinthians 4.4 describes Satan as blinding the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. 1 Peter 5.8 describes Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There is a defiling, blinding, devouring enemy that is on the loose. John 8.44 describes him as a deceiver. He's a liar and the father of lies. And the truth is what sets us free, but these lies lead to bondage. They enslave us. That same text describes Satan as a murderer from the beginning. His goal is to lead men to eternal death. And a wrong response to Jesus, a rejection of the truth of Jesus, a rejection of the authority of Jesus, a rejection of the saving grace in the gospel of Jesus, it means you are not with Jesus. And you are therefore tragically vulnerable to all of Satan's defiling and destructive efforts. You see, our response to Jesus matters. And a wrong response leads to tragic devastation. There's a contrast. A contrast between the wrong response and the right response. 
The second reality that emerges in verses 27 through 28 is that the right response to Jesus, in contrast to all of that ugliness, all of that devastation, that tragedy, the right response to Jesus leads to true blessing. The right response leads to true and real blessing. In verse 27, there's this cry of praise in response to everything Jesus is saying. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nurse. Remember, some have accused Jesus of being empowered by Satan. There's still others who have been suspicious of him and they've demanded a sign that he prove himself even more. But at least one person who's listening seems to really have believed in his message. This woman actually believes that Jesus is speaking the truth. Everything he said about this unclean spirit wandering and coming back, what he said before that about the strong, man, uh, the strong man's palace being plundered, everything that Jesus said about, about the true nature of the conflict and the real source of his power, she, she believes it. She agrees She believes Jesus is speaking the truth and believes that Jesus is their only hope in this spiritual conflict and that Jesus really is bringing the kingdom of God to bear. So she cries out in a word of praise and she pronounces a blessing. Why does she say a blessing on Jesus's mother? You might say, what does Mary have to do with any of this? Well, as a woman, as a mother, as one who understands that precious relationship between a mother and her child, this woman knows it surely must be such a joy and an honor to be the one who brought this Jesus into the world, the the Messiah, the one who was bringing rescue. Surely she must be so proud of him, be proud to be his mom. And really, this is even a cultural way for her to pronounce a blessing on Jesus himself. But notice how Jesus responds in verse 28. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed rather. And this little word rather is important. And and we should not understand it as a rebuke because Jesus is not rejecting her statement. I think what he's doing is actually improving it because what she says is true. I mean, Mary is blessed among women. Remember back in chapter 1, When Mary goes to meet her cousin Elizabeth, Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. That's true and that is good. Later on in Luke chapter one, verse 48, as Mary worships God and bursts forth in song with joy, she says, he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So this woman, in crying out this blessing on the mother of Jesus, she's not saying anything that's untrue or inaccurate. She's exactly right. But her statement doesn't go far enough. So Jesus says, yes, of course, but there's more. There's more blessing than just the blessing on Mary for being my mother. And he points this woman, and he points us to something greater. He says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He says, these are the ones that are blessed. And these are the ones who should be recognized as blessed. The ones who hear the word of God and keep it. You see, there were many, many people who heard Jesus. Many who heard his preaching. 
many who heard his parables, many who heard his proclamation of the good news. But hearing and keeping have to be paired together. They must not be separated. To keep has the idea of holding on to, of treasuring and and obeying, and it's really an expression of faith. This is what faith does. Faith not only hears God's word, but receives it and embraces it and treasures it and, and then lives in submission to it. That's what faith does. And this idea of hearing and keeping God's word is really being an an emphasis in Luke's gospel, an emphasis in the ministry of Jesus. Remember back in chapter six, in verse 46, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, The stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Hearing and obeying, hearing and keeping, hearing and believing, they have to go together. In Luke chapter 8, verse 15, as Jesus tells a parable about the soils and and the seed that falls on the rocky soil and on the thorny soil and eventually on the good soil, Jesus says that the seed in the good soil, that's those who hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. It's those who hear and keep the word that will be blessed. By the way, Mary, Jesus's mother, is actually a great example of this. She's a great example of this kind of faith. And Mary is blessed not simply because she gave birth to the Messiah, She is blessed for her right response to the word of God. Remember when Mary heard the shocking revelation of the angel that she was to give birth to the Messiah by the power of the Holy Spirit? Remember remember how she responded? In Luke 138, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In Luke chapter 219, as Mary gives birth to the Messiah, and she's told these remarkable stories of angels singing in the heaven by the shepherds. Mary treasured up all these things. The announcement of the angels, the worship of the shepherds, this miraculous birth. Even though she was a virgin, she treasured all these things and pondering them in her heart. That's Mary's faith on display. And that is the ultimate blessing for her. This is the right response to Jesus. This is the right response to the word of God. And Jesus says it leads to true blessing. Blessing that comes not through physical relationship, not through physical proximity, being near to Jesus. It's a blessing that comes through faith-driven obedience. This is what Jesus is looking for. This is what it means to be with him. This is what it looks like to respond rightly to his message, to hear and to keep his word. So Jesus is not rebuking this woman in the crowd. What he actually does is offer her an invitation. Listen, you will never have a son like Jesus. But there's a different path to blessing, and it's a path that's open to all. It's faith in Christ. You can be blessed, along with Mary, the mother of Christ, through faith. Hear his word. Believe it to be true. 
Believe it to be eternal. Believe it to be from God. Believe that this word is the key to life. And let that belief drive you to embrace and submit to all that it says. And Jesus promises you will be blessed. You might ask, what all does this blessing include? Well, we don't have enough time today to expound all of the blessings, but let me give you a short list. It's the blessing of salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. How about that for an eternal blessing? That's the blessing that comes through faith in Christ. It's the blessing of peace, the blessing of joy, the blessing of hope. Romans 5.1 describes it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Those blessings are ours through Christ. We receive the blessing of God's personal help and his protection. Instead of being vulnerable to destruction, instead of being completely at the mercy of our spiritual enemy, God says in Isaiah 43, 1, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Those blessings are ours through faith in Christ, God's protection. We receive the blessing of an eternal reward. Earlier on in Luke chapter 6, Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples in verse 20, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Those are the blessings that are ours through faith in Christ. We receive the blessing of a spiritual family, a place of belonging in the church. In Luke 8, 21, Jesus said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Hearing and doing creates a new family. In the gospel, we are made not only the sons and daughters of God, we're made brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a blessing. As 1 Corinthians three twenty three puts it, all things are yours and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This blessing is greater and more infinite than we can even imagine. And perhaps especially in contrast to the devastation of these evil spirits, consider the blessing of the Holy Spirit and his personal presence in our life. I love how Jesus describes it in John 7, verse 37. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. What an amazing picture of the Holy Spirit coming to dwell, producing these rivers of living water. Instead of being a receptacle for defilement, these unclean spirits bringing devastation and destruction, our hearts can overflow with spiritual life. A life that comes from the very presence of God himself dwelling in us. This is blessing. This is what it means to be blessed. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hear and who keep the word of God. Salvation and all of its benefits in Jesus Christ. That is what is offered to you. It comes to those who believe. Those who place their faith in Jesus. Those who hear and keep his word. So this demands a response. It demands a response. What about you? Perhaps you are impressed by Jesus' works, his miracles, his healings, the resurrections, the walking on the water, the feeding the thousands. Perhaps you've been inspired by Jesus' words. You like the parables. You love how he exposes hypocrisy in the Pharisees. But how will you respond? What are you going to do with Christ and his claims? Listen, in the coming of Jesus into the world, in the preaching of the gospel, the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what Jesus says. He is no mere teacher. He is no magician. He is no trickster. This is the finger of God. This is God entering into the world and working. So what are we going to do with that? Whether rejection of Jesus is active and aggressive, those who revile him, those who hate him, or whether that rejection of Jesus is respectful and polite and passive, those who say, no, thank you. It sounds great. I'm happy that that works for you. But I don't think I need that. In either case, it's still rejection. And if you don't respond in faith to the preaching of the gospel, then you are in danger of being far worse off than if you had never heard the gospel. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Listen, you can grow up in the church, you can read the Bible, you can even like Jesus, but the Bible says you must be born again, and that's a different thing. You must be born again. You must be rescued from sin and death by the power of the cross. You must believe in the gospel. You must repent of your sins. This is our great need. Your great need is not simply a more orderly life. Your great need is not simply moral improvement. Your great need is not self-powered change that's accomplished in your own strength. What you need is spiritual transformation that comes only through the Spirit of God. Because listen, when Christ returns and when his judgment is poured out, your Christian values will not save you. Your conservative convictions will not save you. Your supposedly good works will actually be counted as filthy rags, and they will not, and they cannot save you. Only Jesus can save you. Only Christ can save. 
So this text calls us to a Godward response of faith, receiving God's word, receiving God's spirit who comes to dwell in us, trusting in God's son, believing in God's gospel. That is what leads to a life of blessing, a life that is empowered by and submitted to God's spirit, a life that is swept up into the very kingdom of God and all the benefits of salvation that are given to us in Christ. So this Thanksgiving, as you reflect on the many blessings that God has poured out on us, let's take care to especially give thanks for the true blessing, the blessing of salvation that is ours in Christ. Thank him that he came to rescue us, that he came to rescue us from a power and a kingdom that we have no ability to withstand or escape or overcome on our own. Let's thank him that he came to bring this good news into the world, that he died on the cross to forgive us of sin, that he rose from the grave to secure eternal life for us, and that this invitation of blessing is open to all. You don't have to be physically related to Jesus to be counted blessed. Blessed are all who hear and who keep the word. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is astounding to think of the great spiritual danger that so many are in today. Unprotected, unshielded, vulnerable to the wiles of the enemy, susceptible to his lies, enslaved by his power, trapped in his kingdom, without power to resist, without the ability to free themselves. And what a tragedy that so many would hear of Christ and hear the good news of salvation and hear that there is a way to be free, a way to be rescued, a way to be blessed a way to become whole, a way to live a rightly ordered life as one who's been reconciled to the Father. What a tragedy that so many would hear and say no. Father, I pray if there's any among our number this morning who need Christ, who need the Spirit to come and dwell in them and make them new, to flip that sign around so it says no vacancy, I pray that you would rescue sinners today. Grant them faith to see the way things really are and the humility to repent of sin and cry out in weakness and in need to be rescued by Christ, seeing that he's the only one who can save them. Lord, for those of us who have embraced your word, who believe it, we thank you for these astounding blessings that have been poured out onto us. You've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places with Christ. You've given us an inheritance. You've given us a name. We've been adopted into your family. You've given us freedom. You've given us the indwelling presence and power of your spirit. You've given us a new family in the church. You've given us hope for eternity. Lord, we thank you and praise you that this blessing that we don't deserve, that we could not earn, that you have provided it to us at great personal cost, we thank you for Jesus Christ, for his humble birth, his righteous life, his sacrificial death. We thank you for the resurrection and the hope that we have that we can belong to the winning team 
that we can be with Christ and all that comes with that. Lord, may you receive the glory today. And may our joy and our gladness be expanded as we consider all that Christ is and all that Christ has done for us. Amen.